Hi, everyone. Welcome to uh, Dangerous Thoughts here on Unsafe Space. It's going to be a little bit of a casual show today. I am still COVID positive, recovering from COVID, but I am going to uh, try and make it through an hour or so with you guys today. Um, sorry, there's background noise. I don't know if you can hear that, but you know, as soon as I go live, someone decides to, I don't know what they're, I don't know what my wife's doing. Maybe she's trying to, uh, she sounds like she's hammering the granite counters in the kitchen, but whatever. Okay. Um, you're watching Dangerous Thoughts with me, Carter Laren. This is a series that uh, we do here on Unsafe Space every Wednesday evening or most Wednesday evenings. Uh, I skipped last week because I was in the uh, <clears throat> in a really, really bad COVID place. Um, this this series is, a, is less about news. It's more about ideas. Um, if you think of culture uh, as kind of a an enormous heavy ship, um, Ideas, fundamental ideas, are like the inertia of that ship. Um, they propel that ship in a particular direction, and steering it takes time. Uh, it can be generations even. Um, you got to change gears, move the rudder, all that kind of stuff matters. And it's kind of impossible to steer the ship if you ignore philosophical ideas, if you ignore metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, that kind of stuff. Um Everything else is just kind of arguing over the the you know what's playing on the radio on the ship and the arrangement of the deck chairs and everything else. So um, that's what we're here to do. We're here to talk about the application of reason and individualist ethics and help steer uh, culture or at least a subculture away from some of the, cat the the catastrophic consequences of collectivist ideology, whether that's from people on the left, which lately seems to be much more the case, or or if it comes from people on the right, we want to steer steer them away from collectivism on the right as well. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, hammered granite for supper. Then, yeah, uh, I guess that's that's what's for supper. You know, <clears throat> you deal with what you got. Um, so, like I said, today's show is going to be a little bit casual. We're gonna I'm going to try and get caught up on some community topics. So, a few weeks ago, I did a show where we had people come on air from the community and also just send messages from the community about topics you wanted me to address. I didn't get to all of them. I still have some. So I figured I'd uh, spend some time today just kind of answering those and going through and talking about those topics. If you have other topics you want uh, me to address, just uh, send me a super chat or if chat's if chat's going slowly, drop it in chat and I might see it just in regular chat. Um, I, did, I did say I was going to talk about Davos. I got sick, like I said. I haven't, uh, I haven't reviewed all the Davos material. Not that I'm going to review all of it, but I haven't really spent the time to to look into what's been going on in Davos a couple weeks ago. So I will get to that and do a show um, <clears throat> about Davos, but that's not today. So, <clears throat> all right. First, um, <laughs> someone JV in chat says, "When will Saturn vehicles come back?" I liked Saturn. I, I don't. I don't think. Everyone is old enough to remember Saturn vehicles, but I like Saturn vehicles. If you're new to Unsafe Space, by the way, welcome. Please make sure you're subscribed. You can go to unsafespace.com to watch uh, <clears throat> any content, this this series, uh, any other series we have. Please share episodes. It's free to share episodes. Share them with your friends. Um, share them online. That does help us out. In addition to this series of uh, Dangerous Thoughts, we have a lot of other series. Um, in fact, there's a schedule on unsafespace.com. You can go to, I think it's about content schedule or whatever. Um, schedule's right there. 
Um, next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific, we got 4, 451 Degrees with Alex Maselli. That's a series that she does every other Tuesday or so about um, censorship. And specifically, I think she likes to focus on censorship in the arts. Uh, and tomorrow evening, Alex and Beverly do a show called Token Minority Report. That's also at 4 p.m. Pacific. That's more of a pop culture show. Um, this Sunday, we have a book club coming up, which is uh, House of Leaves by Daniel Mark Danielowski. Uh, so if you want to participate in that. You can be around for that. Narrative Dissonance is a show we do on Mondays at 2 p.m. Pacific. That's a panel uh, where we have a, we have a panel of different guests every week that we discuss about how mainstream media has been misleading us, that kind of thing. Next week, we have Megan Fox, uh, not the toe-thumb Megan Fox, but the cool Megan Fox from PJ Media. Um, Megan Fox and, and Juliet Dillon. Uh, you might know her as Juliet Truthseeker on Gab, so they'll be our panelists on uh, this coming Monday and earlier today, actually, we had a we had a show with Keith Bissett. Keith does a show, not quite every Wednesday like Dangerous Thoughts, but just about every Wednesday it seems lately. Um, his show is called Rebel Civics, and um, it's focused on uh, the relationship between government and individuals. And he did a show today uh, about. What well, kind of themed around Flag Day, which was yesterday, and he did a show about the Pledge of Pledge of Allegiance, which I, I recommend you checking it out. Um, you know, uh, I I was joking with Keith yesterday. I actually haven't watched his show, but I can kind of guess most of what he would say about this. And I I was joking with him yesterday on a call, and I said I think if I was gonna if I was going to edit the pledge of pledge of allegiance down to something that's actually morally acceptable to say, I think for me, it would be, I pledge allegiance to liberty and justice for all and everything in between has to, has to go. Um, in fact, I was, I, uh, I'm just going to tell stories right now, by the way, I apologize if I have to mute myself and cough once in a while, which I need to do right now. Oof, sorry. Um, I was telling Keith that when my when my oldest daughter, who's now 13, when she was in, I think kin, it might have been kindergarten, might have been first grade, I don't remember. She went to this, there's a um, chain of schools, chain of private schools in the Bay Area called Challenger, which is, um, you know, they're kind of these academically accelerated. It's mostly like Chinese and Indian kids <laughs> that go there because their parents are like want them to study and work hard and, and they, um, they kind of have that ethic and... Um, <clears throat> But they, like a lot of, I think, well-meaning immigrants, they conflate like a good work ethic with kind of nationalism or patriotism. They, they have this this view of America as um, hmm, the the something that actually stands for the principles of what America used to stand for. They kind of still have this nostalgic view of it because they, they've, you know, read about it and then moved here and, and kind of are very patriotic in that way. So they, they had all the kids do um, pledge of allegiance and even kindergartners, they, they had them stand up and I think they had to put their, their hand on their heart and do the pledge of allegiance every morning. And uh, I was that annoying parent who <laughs> argued that my daughter should not have to, to do that. Um, and the CEO of the the schools at the time, I think he was like an objectivist sort of dude. And uh, I ended up writing a big letter about how horrible it was to make kids. do. And I do believe that, by the way, I know, I know there's kind of a cliche that it's the 
kind of you know the weird anti-american leftists who who push against that stuff but um look pressuring kids to make pledges especially kindergartners and first graders pressuring kids to make pledges is vile it's absolutely vile because words matter Prom your promises matter kindergartners or first graders or whatever, they can't possibly understand what it means to pledge allegiance to a flag of all things i don't even know what the hell that means actually but pledge pledge to a flag and then to abstract concepts like the republic for which it stands they have no idea what that means a nation they don't even really understand what that means god i mean that was added in 1954 but like asking them to pledge to all this even stuff that i like like liberty and justice asking them to pledge to liberty and justice a kindergartner doesn't know what liberty and justice means in any real way asking them to pledge to that makes absolutely no sense it's it's um you know pressuring them to recite stuff like that even if you agree with the stuff is it's indoctrination um it's indoctrination and before you say yeah but it's good indoctrination no first of all it's not the pledge itself is is horrible indoctrination and, and go watch keith's show from earlier today about that but uh there is no such thing as good indoctrination right indoctrinated zombies are incapable of defending western civilization we, we we're not going to defend the west with a bunch of people who've been indoctrinated to the ideas that you think or even i think are good Right? If we want to save Western civilization, that requires individuals with the ability to think critically and analytically and in terms of principles. This requires them understanding the principles, not just obedience to the principles. It requires actual understanding of them, which you don't get through indoctrination. That doesn't, you know, this it's similar to what I've said about disciplining children in the past. Um, you know, <clears throat> If you get your kids to obey you out of fear, like you'll spank them or punish them in some in some way like that, and they're they're only obeying you out of fear, that doesn't work. You're not you're not producing the children that you think you are. You're not producing good kids, right? The only thing that works in the long run is understanding. In fact, there have been studies, by the way, on spanking in particular, like their behavior changes temporarily and then reverts back because they're doing it because they don't want to get hit that's not a good reason to be moral like because i don't want to get smacked by someone three times my size is not a reason to be moral um only understanding works in the long run right you've got to teach your kids why they should for their own benefit for their own good why they should be moral what it means to be moral and why it's good for them to be moral right not you know be moral or i'll smack you I'll be immoral. I'll smack you. That's like that just teaches them that might makes right. And when they're bigger than someone, they'll be like, well, you know, all that matters is is that. So um, it's kind of a similar thing with indoctrination. You want you don't want kids reciting stuff, even if it's good stuff that you believe in, when they don't understand what the hell it is. So, all right. <clears throat> Let's look at some topics that, that you guys wanted to discuss last time. <sighs> stuff that I didn't get to. All right, so first of all, some of this stuff is, is a little bit deep. I, maybe I shouldn't have start, I shouldn't start with this one, but whatever. Um, <coughs> excuse me, Thomas St. Thomas asked last time, why is slavery wrong and what's the moral 
underpinning for it. And I know that sounds like it's that might sound like a simple question. And, you know, maybe. Maybe it is, but I think those are the questions that are, that matter a lot of times. A lot of times we we something seems so wrong, but we actually haven't thought it through. And if we get asked like why it's wrong, we, we find ourselves going, well, gee, I don't know, but it definitely is wrong. Right. So you should be able to answer questions like this. Um so let's try and answer it. Uh and I think to answer the question of like why is slavery wrong, we we first need to say, well, why the hell do we need ethics? Why do we need a concept of ethics? at all in the first place. And I won't go through all of this because I have in the past, but, um, you know, well, we need ethics because there's more than one person in the world and it's preferable to live with other people than isolated on islands. Right. So, so ethics are going to, uh, direct our behavior when it, when it comes to interacting with other people. If you are alone on a desert island all by yourself, you actually don't need ethics. I mean, you might need a concept of ethics that applies to your, your own life as a standard and, you know, eating good food and not poison and that kind of stuff. But you don't need a concept of ethics with respect to interaction with other people because there are there are no other people, right? Um, and, you know, rational ethics obviously needs to start with uh, metaphysics, right? And you have to, you know, you have to have questions like, well, are all humans fundamentally the same in terms of essential characteristics, right? Um, and I mean, the answer to that is yes. What, what makes us human is that our minds are our primary means of survival, right? We may have varying aptitudes and abilities, but um, all humans use their rational mind as their primary means of survival. Even the most irrational people you can possibly think of, even, you know, go to libs of TikTok, find the craziest, most irrational person you can possibly think of. Um, they mostly use rational reasoning to live their lives. I know that's hard to believe if you just go based on what they say on TikTok, but you know, they don't, they don't get out of bed and assume that they can consume poison and, and, and not have actual, I mean, some of them do practically that, but like they don't, they don't assume that they can, you know, assume that they can eat poison and, and, and survive. They don't, they don't walk off of the roof of a tall building and think that gravity is not going to pull them to their death. Right. Like they, they, when they get into a car, they, they understand that head-on collisions are bad for them. Like they, most of their day, like menial day-to-day -day, trivial things require their, their rational mind to be functioning on some level. And when it's not functioning to the point where they can't survive, we institutionalize people when they, like, they, they, they become, you know, we call them crazy. So humans can't actually survive on instinct. We do need our rational mind. Um, obviously, we're not, uh, unlike animals, we have a choice whether to engage it or not. So we can be rational in one moment and in the next moment go on libs of TikTok or go on TikTok and, and say crazy things and say that our, our genders are toy self is our pronoun, right? Like we can do that, but um, <clears throat> that's, uh, that's, an, that's, how we're, that's an, a method of us turning off our survival mechanism. Uh, anyway, so... <clears throat> All this universality in ethics that we talk about in, in, you know, when we talk about Western civilization and Western culture and, and the ethics, Western ethics, we're talking about these concepts of universality. Universality is something that is, is uh, I don't wouldn't say completely unique to the West, but is essential to Western ethical thought. And um, that universality stems from the fact that we all have this rational mind and it is our primary means of survival. We don't have, none of us, you know, even people who, who are excellent athletes 
their primary means of survival isn't their athletic bodies. It's still their rational functioning mind. In the end, we're all kind of, you know, uh, unprotected and weak uh, compared to a lion or even an elephant or something in, in the wild, right? So our means of survival is not a thick hide or that we run fast or we have sharp claws. It's that we have a rational mind and we can adapt the environment to suit our needs. So, um, so ethics apply to all creatures of this type. Any creature who has this, you know, rational mind as their primary means of survival, ethics applies to to them. The kind of ethics that we're talking about, this rational ethics applies to them. So, you know, that means a human, you know, a person with a human body but the brain of a hyena, ethics don't actually apply to them. Like we don't, we don't need to respect their rights or anything. That they don't, they don't. Ethics don't. Human ethics don't apply to them. They don't have. Uh, they don't have a human faculty. Now, generally what we do again in cases like that are we kind of usually isolate people. They, we, we deprive them of their, of many of their rights. We usually kind of take care of them, put them in institutions or whatever. Um, but again, you know, if an alien with a rational faculty shows up on our doorstep, I was just seeing an article today that China said they had intercepted alien <laughs> messages and then retracted it and it was like oh no it's just radio frequency interference but uh you know if aliens show up at our doorstep with rational faculties um then ethics do apply to them you, you can't just shoot them uh of course if they initiate the use of force then then yes absolutely you can but um you know and if john locke if you if you view like if you take like a secularist view if there was a secular version of Jean, John Locke one of his his big contributions to ethics was to kind of say like well kings are people too right there's no divine right of kings they are the 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 ethics here universally apply to kings and peasants and and everyone in between so um so we have this foundation of of ethics which is universal um and again, I don't want to walk through all of the derivations here because we've a done some of this in the past, and b it'll be laborious. Um, but you'd say, okay, well, <clears throat> you need to be able to you need to be free to use your mind, since that's your primary means of survival, and not just in a virtual reality, right? Like actually in the world, like thinking is necessary, but it's not sufficient for your physical survival and thriving. You have to be able to act based on what you think you're not a detached brain living in a in a virtual reality environment if you were a detached brain that had no physical requirements for your survival then you wouldn't need to be free to physically act on what you thought because your thinking would be the entire realm of your existence right um so uh but that's not what we are we have bodies we exist in in the physical world um so using our rational faculties is necessary, but it's not sufficient. We need to be able to f be, be free to actually do what we have decided to do. We need to be free to act according to our judgment. Right? We can't just be free to decide what I should do is, is eat food and then be like, well, you're not allowed to eat food. So you're going to die. It's like, well, then you're not, you're not free to actually apply your rational mind to living in reality. And so <clears throat> that's what we call, kind of individual sovereignty, right? Um, you have this kind of individual sovereignty where you need to be able to you, free to use your mind and then and then act based on that. And of course, there's an immediate problem that arises, which is like, well, what if I decide that I should kill you and take your stuff? That's that's what I 
decide to do. Um, and uh, this is a conflict, right? Because this is a conflict of that, that this viol this is a violation of that idea of universality because, well, if I decide to kill you and take your stuff, you are actually no longer free to think and act. Um, so I'm violating this universality of this ethics. So we derive rights from this. We, we kind of say, well, there's this idea of universal individual sovereignty. Um, and rights are basically, again, I'm skipping over some stuff, but rights are basically things you're not allowed to stop other people from doing, right? The right to life means you can't stop their life. The right to property means you can't take the property. The right to speak means, you know, you're free to not listen to them, but you can't shut them up physically. Um, <clears throat> one note here is that this is a mutual agreement only. It's never unidirectional, right? So it's only necessary to respect rights of entities who respect your rights. So the moment, the moment that that your rights are violated, you're off the hook, right? The moment someone points a gun at you, you're off the hook. You can shoot and kill. That's totally ethical, right? The moment they do that, I mean, seriously, point a gun, not a squirt gun for fun, but like the moment you like they introduce the use of of force, um, the moment they lie to you, you're free to lie back to them. Like the moment they do not respect your rights. You are not under in any obligation. It's not a it's not a unidirectional thing. There's not a uh, a magical ledger, you know, in 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 some alternate universe or somewhere in in space or in the sky or whatever. There's not a ledger where it's like, well, you did this thing and that's a bad thing objectively. And like, nope. Your your job is to respect. You know, your obligation is to respect the individual sovereignty of other beings who respect individual sovereignty but beyond that you're not obligated to treat people uh you don't have to treat a mass murderer like your best friend that's not an obligation all right so let's get to slavery um actually mary says right there are no human instincts <clears throat> i would disagree with this Mary, there are human instincts. They just don't mean crap. I mean, we do have instincts. And it's not that they mean nothing. We just can't live by instinct. Right? They're not sufficient. We can't we can't live by our instinct. Um but we do have we do have instincts. We do we do have things we instincts are basically feelings, right? So we do have them. Um all right, so let's get to slavery. So there's this concept of individual sovereignty. Obviously, slavery is a violation. Of, of rights and a violation of this concept of individual sovereignty. Um, and it, it's worth pointing out that, you know, I have in the past um, been sloppy with language sometimes and said self-ownership rather than individual sovereignty. And this is one of these cases in which individual sovereignty, it's, it's important to make this distinction because self-ownership um, actually almost implies that maybe, well, could you transfer the ownership and therefore be a slave? Like self-ownership actually isn't, isn't, accurate as a term, which is why I'm saying individual sovereignty. Um, the, the difference here is your individual sovereignty can't actually be relinquished, even if you want to relinquish it. Um, your individual sovereignty is a metaphysical fact of your existence. You can't physically give someone else control over that part of your consciousness that chooses whether you think or not, and it makes decisions. You, you can't do it. It's impossible. At best, you could agree to behave 
in a way that they tell you, you could say, well, I will, I agree to be suspend my judgment and follow your orders. But you can't actually hand the reins of your intellectual faculties over to someone else. It's it's literally impossible to do. Um, because you have you actually have individual sovereignty that 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 sovereignty is not just a um, ethical freedom to to act according to your own judgment. It's also a metaphysical requirement that you act according to your own judgment. You can't, you have this obligation, you have this, I don't want to use the word duty, but like the nature of who you are requires that you decide whether or not to think in any given moment. Like that's, you, like we talked about instinct, you don't have a choice to be like, I'm just going to turn this off and, and not engage my brain. You, you can't actually do that. Um, so <clears throat> that control over what makes you, you, that's my daughter. You might be able to hear. Sorry about that. She sounds upset. Maybe she's being asked to give up her individual sovereignty. Um, you know, at best you could agree to behave, like I said, but you can't give up control over, over what makes you, you, you're stuck with this, um, you're stuck with this responsibility for operating your brain. You can't, you can't do that. Now, as an aside, that responsibility of thinking and making decisions for yourself um, does become psychologically tiring for some people. Um, this is why uh, I think this is a theory, but I'm, I think it's, 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 played out a little bit and i think there's evidence to support this this is why sometimes you see the rise of like domination and submission kind of stuff sexually like you're, you often you have people looking for freedom from responsibility they're looking for a relief to like not make decision that's what they want and a, a little more g-rated version of this is i remember reading you know think what you want about them i hate Barack Obama also and basically everything he stands for but i remember reading an article about him years ago in which um, he recognized that the, you know, the, and I think this is also borne out. Uh, uh, I think there's been studies about this. You have only so much kind of decision-making energy in a day and you need to save it for the things that are important. So, uh, Obama had someone else pick out his clothes every day. Like he had his, he had nothing to do. I mean, I'm sure he gave them some high level direction at one point, but when he got up in the morning, he didn't decide what tie to wear or what suit to wear someone else did that for him so that he could save his decision-making energy for something else. Um, again, I know that sounds kind of trite and silly and probably no one here likes Obama, but there you go. All right. So, so that, that makes that kind of like outright, this is, that's why that kind of outright slavery is kind of literally impossible. You can't actually give control to someone else like that. Um, but let's get to the second part of this question. There's another part of this question. We can, we can tease this out a little bit more because that seems too simple. Um, <clears throat> and so the second part of Thomas's question is, what are then the consequences for the principle at the bottom of why it's wrong? And how does that principle guide us through the rest of our thinking about humanity and our actions in it? Well, <clears throat> um, this concept of individual sovereignty basically means that attempts to undermine someone else's relationship with reality, so any attempt to maybe corrupt the efficacy of their thinking by misrepresenting morality um, or, or um, 
by corrupting that relationship with reality, those attempts are immoral. That's what that means, right? So this is like lying. This is why lying is moral. Gaslighting is immoral, right? Attempting to gain a value through deceit is immoral. You're trying to disrupt someone's relationship with reality. It's why theft and assault, aside from the initiation of force, it's why theft and assault are are um, kind of fundamentally fundamentally uh, a problem. Even even the initiation of these forces aside, right? It's it's why initiation of these forces bad. You're you're undermining their ability to use their brain and apply it to reality. You're interrupting that real that relationship between someone else's brain and reality and their actions in reality. Um, and you're responsible for your own relationship with reality. That's the other half of individual sovereignty. It means you got to leave other people alone to have their relationship with reality. And you're responsible for your own relationship with reality. And that doesn't just mean your physical state, but also your emotional state, right? So that's kind of, those are kind of the consequences of this, this concept of individual sovereignty, which is the underlying principle that makes slavery uh, immoral. Um, but I think Thomas didn't ask this question. But I'm going to make the question harder because I think he might have meant this. Because um, I've heard this question before, and I think it's a tough question. Um, and that question is, can you voluntarily agree to be a slave? Right? Can you agree to be a slave? And I'm not talking about... I mentioned the kink stuff earlier, right? I'm not talking about kink stuff where, like, people decide, to, you know, for... It's a Saturday night, and they're gonna agree to do whatever BDSM stuff they want to do, or whatever, right? Like, like I'm talking actually. Can you act? Can you actually agree to be a slave? Um, and of course, this is where the difference between this concept of self ownership and individual sovereignty is important. Because if if we're using terms like self ownership, it's it kind of has this implication, like, well, like I own this pen, so I should be able to give it to someone else or exchange it to some someone else. Like, so if I own my life, can I exchange it for someone else to someone else? Can I give it to someone else? Can I exchange it for something? Um, but that's not, that doesn't really work with individual sovereignty. So um, if you were going to be an actual slave, you, you, I guess you could have a, you could make a commitment. You'd have to try and make a commitment to behave not according to your own interests, your own judgment forever. And all, like, you'd have to behave according to someone else's uh, orders forever in all respects, in exchange for nothing, basically, right? Um, and I don't think you can actually do that. I mean, agreements require some sort of exchange of value. So I don't, I don't think that you could say, well, I'm going to, for in, in exchange for nothing, I'm just going to agree to not act in my own interest in judgment because at any moment you can wake up and decide now nah, today I give I don't want to anymore and you're not really under any moral obligation to continue listening to your alleged master all right you can well you don't want to um there's no exchange of value there's no there's no real agreement that you can make there fundamentally that's your own individual sovereignty but you could make this more complicated and say what about things like indentured servitude all right you could say, well, can I, in indentured servitude is this idea of like, well, uh, you see it in, actually, I think it's it's in the Bible even, right? You see it, uh, wasn't Rachel and Leah, wasn't there like, you work for seven years and you get to marry Rachel and then the, the dad 
got him drunk and he married Leah and had to do another seven years or whatever it was. Right. There's like, you, you commit to some period of time, um, working, um, being an indentured servant, which is kind of, kind of like a temporary slave, I guess. Right. Um, so you agree, you agree for some period of time and then, uh, and then it's over. Um, well, uh, I guess you could do that, but you'd still be free to change your mind in the middle of that. But we can make it more complicated because you're not getting any, you haven't gotten any value, but we could make it more complicated and say, well, what if you get the value first and then you commit to some period of time? Like, you know, I will work for you for seven years if I can marry Rachel today. And like, and look, okay, fine. Here, here's Rachel. You guys can get married. It's kind of weird to be using a marriage, but I'm just have that story in my head. Right. So, Okay, here you get you get the value. Now you owe me the seven years of commitment or whatever it is to to work on the farm or whatever you're supposed to do. Um, and I would argue that even in that case, um, you still fundamentally are free to leave, but you might owe the price of the whatever value you received, and you may have to have some way to compensate it. But I actually think it can get complicated when you ask things like indentured servitude and upfront and commitment and then um you know you change your mind and like how do you how do you make up for that i mean fundamentally like i said earlier fundamentally you can't give up this uh you can't give up this individual sovereignty an agreement does require an exchange of values so like if i'm not getting any value i can decide to disobey and, and change my mind at any moment but you know there is this question of like, well, if I if I got some value and then I committed to something and like, there's got to be a way for me to I've got to pay that in some way and um and there's I, I would say there's probably got to be ways some way for me to say well I I don't want to pay it this way there's got to be some monetary way to make up for this or give the value back that I got or whatever it was um so but I don't think that's a simple question I don't I don't think. When you start getting into indentured servitude, I think actually it does kind of get messy about what you can and can't do. Um, but I think the fundamental thing to remember here is you can't actually give up control of yourself. Um, it's not possible. Um, and and agreements require exchanges of values. So, uh, you know, you're free to agree to be a slave for a while. But the, the morning you wake up and decide you don't want to do it anymore, you're free to not do it anymore. Um, all right. Um, someone in the chat says slave kids born become slave owner property. This is not the case for indentured servants because only yourself is the contract. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, I could see, I could see that. Um, I mean, you can imagine in the case of an indentured servant where you agree that your kids become the quote property again or, but whatever. Um, but still, it's this fundamental question. So, I mean, I think the, the fundamental question of like just regular old slavery is like pretty clear. It only starts getting messy when you start doing things like indentured servitude. Because you can make it, you can say, well, uh, <laughs> I go, let's say I go to a restaurant. I mean, this is a silly example, but I'll, I'll give two extreme examples. I go to a restaurant, I, uh, I pay first. Right, I I want a steak. I pay fifty bucks for this. It's a nice steak. I pay fifty bucks. They're supposed to bring me a steak. 
They're obligated to cook me a steak and bring me a steak. That's the obligation, right? Are they my indentured servant? Hmm. They're obligated to do that work for me. Now, they could say, sorry, we ran out of steak. We don't want to. We don't like you anymore. Here's your 50 bucks back. They would have to make that compensation, right? So there's that exchange of value. So that's pretty clear that like, well, they could undo that transaction pretty easily. But we could go the other extreme and say, well, uh, I'm going to give you $10 million and you have to be my, <laughs> you know, you have to agree to be, be my errand person, right, for 50 years or whatever. Like you could have some, you know, agree just thing like that. And then it's like, okay, well, <clears throat> again, there needs to be some way to unwind that when you wake up after year one and decide you don't want to work for me for the next 49 years, even though you've got your 10 million bucks, well, you just, there's got to be a way to, to unwind that. But I do think it's a little bit more complicated than just straight up slavery. Uh, let's see. JB says, but there's not regular old slavery. By your logic, there is no slavery. Any person could just kill themselves. I don't understand why that's my logic, but you might be missing something, JB. There's not regular old slavery. There was regular old slavery. There's not now. Um, well, actually, there is now. I mean, I think in I think there's open air slave trading in Libya. Um, by my logic, there is no slavery. Any person could just kill themselves. Yeah, I don't. I don't understand what that means. I don't. I think you're missing something. Okay. Um, so someone in chat can explain the JV. All right. So look, I mean, like I said, I think that's the general answer to slavery. I think uh, it's, it's the violation is based on this individual sovereignty thing. You can't actually give this over. Um, it's not something that you can do. And the best, you know, the, what can happen is someone can force you right? By physical force, by brute force, they can force you to behave in a certain way. But of course, um, that's denying your individual sovereignty, which is clearly unethical. Uh, so that's what makes it wrong. All right. <clears throat> Bim Sherwood asked, I think we're done on slavery, right? Um, unless, I'm, unless you guys think I'm missing something. About um, all right. Bim Sherwood says, is inductive reasoning an axiom of the scientific method or is it justified by some simpler principles? Um, it's kind of an oddly worded question. Uh, axioms are self-evident. Um, they're generally, you can think of axioms as, as, as things you can't deny without accepting statements or or propositions that can't be denied uh, without accepting. <clears throat> so I'll, we'll give you an example of an axiom. <clears throat> I think Leonard Peikoff told this story about Aristotle. I've not read this part of Aristotle. I don't remember where this is, but I think it, I think it was Peikoff talking about Aristotle. So this is kind of the origin of the story is a little bit question is a little bit vague to me because I don't remember reading this particular thing in Aristotle, but I haven't read all of Aristotle. Um, but I'll, I'll relay the story anyway, because it's a good example of kind of what an axiom is. So the law of identity is an axiom. Um, 
and um, the law of identity is this is what Aristotle essentialized uh, uh, into this phrase a is a a thing is what it is right a thing is it it's it's at a certain time in a certain respect a thing is what it is right that's um, that's distilled in this idea that a is a <clears throat> And I remember Peikoff telling this story about Aristotle having an argument with someone. I don't, I don't even remember who he was having some other philosopher. And this other philosopher was saying, no, A isn't A. Uh, you're wrong. A thing isn't what it is. It, you know, that's A, A is A is not true. And Aristotle's response was, oh, well, thank you for agreeing with me that A is A. I, I appreciate it. Thanks, thanks for agreeing with me. And um, the other philosopher was like, no, no you, you don't understand. I... I'm disagreeing. I'm saying what you're saying is wrong, that A isn't A, a thing isn't what it is. And Aristotle said, you know, I understand. Thank you very much for agreeing with me. I, I really appreciate that you agree that A is A. And this kind of went on and escalated, and eventually the other guy was like, ah, stop. You're really frustrating, Aristotle. I, it's really annoying. When I say A isn't A, when I say a thing isn't what it is, that has meaning. My words have specific meanings. They don't mean the opposite of what they are. After all, A is A, right? Like he he has to like he has to accept the he has to accept the axiom, right? Because he can't have the argument, right? Otherwise, well, the words mean whatever you want. If they don't mean a particular thing in a particular way, then then they mean whatever you want. And Aristotle can interpret it however. So, um. Welcome, Richard Pitts. Richard Pitts just uh, popped into chat. So, um, so that's what an axiom is. And there are very few axioms: uh, law of identity, uh, exist, you know, existence exists. Say, say, you know, uh, causality is an axiom. Um, and axioms. So, deduction is when you start with premises and you. And this is what most people think of when they think of reason. They think of logic. They think of deductive logic. Most people, when I say reason, they are thinking to themselves, um, "All men are mortal. Socrates is a man. Therefore, Socrates is mortal." Right? That's they're thinking. They think deduction. That's how they think of what what reason is. Um, and uh, and you know, obviously. If you can, you can deduce some of your premises can be axiomatic. It can be axioms, right? Uh, in fact, uh, deduction relies on on axioms, right? Um, if A isn't A, if a thing isn't what it is, then then the simple all men are mortal. Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is is moral. Mortal doesn't that won't work. If Socrates is also a goat or a pig or a star or a, or you know a pen. At the same time, in the same respect, like it doesn't. Right? So <clears throat> that deductive logic depends on these these axioms. But induction is actually much more common. It's actually it's it's less commonly talked about, but it's uh, I think, frankly, much more fundamental. Um, induction is generalizing from particulars. It's it's looking at particulars and drawing a generalization it's it's creating the premises right when you start with this all men are mortal socrates is a man and then therefore socrates is mortal well you're starting with this premise all men are mortal well that's an inductive generalization you don't there's no where does that come from right that only comes from induction you can't deduce that i mean maybe you could from other premises but those then would need to be induced so um, 
you kind of all knowledge starts with induction. You look out at the world and you form concepts based on what, what you see. So in some sense, you could view induction as axiomatic, I guess, but I, I don't, that's not a term I would use for induction. Um, but to answer, uh, to answer the question, science does, science does presuppose induction, right? I mean, the scientific method is observe, form a hypothesis, test it, observe it. Like that presupposes induction, right? It, which is this like, I can observe particulars and, and draw, make generalizations from these particulars, right? I can drop 14 different things off the Leaning Tower of Pizza and deduce that gravity is this universal thing dependent on mass. Like, like that's, that's a, that's a process of induction, right? The, the, you know, when you, uh, uh, Newton's laws or when you, you know, you know, gravity or whatever, these things are, a lot of the origin of these things is, is a process of induction. That's the, what, what happens is people test it over and over again and they see this relationship and then they try and work out something mathematically and that's where the theory comes from. Um, so science does presuppose that induction works, but literally all knowledge does, right? And so <clears throat> philosophy is the, the field of study that defines the proper relationship between a volitional consciousness and reality. Science only deals with matter and energy. Science is much more narrowly scoped. Philosophy deals with much broader concepts. And I would say induction is required for all of knowledge. Philosophy requires, relies on induction. Um, and induction is much broader than just science. So, uh, again, I'm not sure I would use the word wording that inductive reasoning is axiom of the scientific method. I would say in, induction is uh, the foundation of knowledge. Full stop. Right? You look out at the world, take in sense data, and you try and form concepts. And the only way you can do that is by generalizing. If you, if you had to look at... <clears throat> Every single object is an is a discrete set of experience data, like particular <laughs> light patterns hitting your eyes and sounds and like and all of that was discrete. If you couldn't induce and be like, well, that shape making this quacking sound is a duck, right? Like if you couldn't if you couldn't in, inductively gener generate concepts from all this, you couldn't think. So thinking starts with induction concept formation begins with induction um and of course once you have some concepts you can also then use those to deduce things and you can kind of go both ways as you're building your hierarchy of concepts but in general it starts with induction Zero fuck says induction is proper only induction proper is only possible in high highly ordered systems such as mathematics. I'm not sure I would agree with that. I'm not really even about induction proper, but um, induction, like I said, induction is kind of where concept formation starts everywhere and every everything. Tree surgeon asks, but what is a woman? You know, I did. Um, I did end up watching that Matt Walsh uh, 
show. I kind of trashed it on Monday because I was like, you're picking on the stupid thing that was said. and But it was actually kind of funny. It was awkward and funny and good for someone who hasn't been paying attention to uh, what's been going on. It's like a good primer. I'm like, this is what these people actually believe. It was, it was pretty funny. Um, all right. <clears throat> Lost G Kingslayer says, this is a very important question because it was repeated uh, a couple times. This person really cares about this question. If a birthing person aborts a transgender fetus, is that a hate crime? Uh, I Look, I think the answer is obviously it depends on how Zer votes. Uh, but <laughs> I don't Can you... How do you know a fetus is transgender? I don't, <laughs> I don't know how that would work. Um... <clears throat> I guess you could declare uh, pro pro life people could declare after the abortion that they divined that the fetus really was transgender and therefore it was a hate crime. I like the idea. <clears throat> um. <clears throat> All right. I'll fight you naked says, what is a woman? This is actually super complicated and interesting. I, you know, I don't actually think it's super complicated, but, or interesting, <laughs> not, not to argue with you. I'll fight you naked, but uh, yeah, I don't, uh, in the, in the, in the documentary or in the, yeah, the documentary, the Matt Walsh documentary, he concludes, yes, his wife at the end. And she says, it's an, a woman is an adult human female. Um, <clears throat> that's fine, I guess. Uh, but <clears throat> I think um, I think it's just it would be easy. A lot of the stuff would go away, and it would be easier if we just talked in terms of sex instead of gender. And just been like, all right, well, it's not a woman's sports team; it's a female sports team. Get around that. <laughs> like, I don't care. You want to say you want to say gender is is an expression or whatever, and that most males express themselves in a masculine way and most females express themselves in a feminine way but there could be feminine males and and masculine females none of that really matters if the sports team is a female sports team not a how do you feel about yourself and do you like barbie sports team um <clears throat> but hey <clears throat> all right so hopefully we answered the transgender fetus question sufficiently but if not, you know, bring it up again. Let me know in chat. <clears throat> uh, Stephen Blackheath says AI training is induction. Yes, that's a great point and example, Stephen. Uh, all AI training is induction, um, basically. <clears throat> right? It's looking at a bunch of things and um, drawing generalizations from all the instances. Okay. <clears throat> Ramo Gray Wolf. Now, I'm sorry, man, but I'm not going to read this entire question because it is uh, very long, but I'll read the beginning and maybe get the gist of this, I hope. Um, your thoughts on Biofem's, quote, rights, as if they have any beyond their unalienable rights inherent to them as sapient beings and sovereign individuals, they are as if they don't use rights like a magic spell to achieve their desired effect. Uh, Benny Gesserit witch style. 
when really meaning special privileges, as if words have no concrete meaning, blah, blah, blah. Uh, this kind of goes on. <clears throat> really, what I want to know is what is why do you think it's so hard for others now finally looking at the issue to see the real roots of this? And then he says, see, I'll lay it out. It's plain. It's the biological hardwiring of males and females writ large and run amok. Males are driven to provide and protect females, blah, blah, blah. This goes on. Like, I'm sorry, I can't read the whole thing. It goes on. There's two reasons I can't read the whole, whole thing. One is it's a very long question. And two is there's way too many Dune references. <laughs> and I've never read Dune. <laughs> I don't like the movie. I never watched the new movie. I did not like the original. I know this makes, you know, this is probably, you're going to unsubscribe and go away now. I just don't, I, I did not like the movie. <laughs> I never read the books. Don't know anything about Dune. So uh, the Dune ref references like whew, right over my head. I can't even pronounce them. <clears throat> so, but I'm going to try and um, I think the question here is, is lamenting the decay of Western civilization in the following way. Um, <clears throat> The kind of argument here, I think, think <clears throat> correct me if I'm wrong, uh, the argument here is um, <clears throat> women getting the vote meant that women get control over politics eventually, uh, I guess partly because men die earlier more often or whatever, um, but just in general means women get kind of control over the political apparatus. This leads to a welfare state um, because of the nature on average differences between men and women. Um, <clears throat> feminism then teaches women to adopt masculine standards. So shun birth and motherhood, focus on the career, you get a decline in birth rates. Um, then we import populations that don't value individualism on average as much as the, the native, quote, native population. Um, the question that seemed to be in here is, why do people not see this and they blame the Jews instead? Um, and then what can we do to explain what can we do except create an extremely xenophobic and isolationist society to protect individualism? That, I think, is the essence of the question. <clears throat> Yell at me if I'm wrong in chat, but I think that's the essence of the question. Um, okay. <clears throat> so there's a lot here, uh, and I'm likely to get myself in trouble for responding to this, so this should be fun. Look, women on average do have different psychological uh, dispositions than men. Uh, obviously, that's on average, blah, blah, blah. I shouldn't have to put all these caveats in because you're not morons and you understand how statistics works. Um, this does affect the political state. That's precisely why women wanted the vote, because they felt like if women had the vote, things would be different than they were. So, like, you know, if if if... If I look out at a group of people who's in control, and I'm not in that group, but they're doing everything I would do anyway, what the hell do I need control for? I want control because I want to change things. So, yes, clearly women voting does have an impact on the political climate. Um, it's precisely why, precisely why women want to vote, right? <clears throat> right up front, one caveat I'll say is uh, – I don't think voting is a like I don't think voting is any kind of um, moral. Uh, what's the word? You don't you don't get 
moral authority because more people like 51 percent of the people don't get moral authority over 49 like voting what you vote for doesn't make it right so that's the context that i'm having this like i don't i don't give a crap what people want to vote for i really don't only individual rights are, are okay you want to vote against individual rights i don't care if all of you except for me want to vote against individual rights you're fucking wrong and you shouldn't be allowed to vote away individual rights like that's how ethics works uh, but we're going to have the context in, in voting. So obviously they do affect the political climate. They, they you know, as a group uh, have swayed the political climate. Um, <clears throat> I think there's an argument to be made for that. This might lead to a, a more of a welfare state. Now it's hard to blame it completely on that because this is all happening in the context of a collectivist ideology. Remember we have institutional capture um, which happened a long time ago. We've, we've had collectivist men, collectivists, in charge of universities uh, and especially uh, humanities departments for centuries. So th the this is not happening in a vacuum. Like there's a lot of other things pushing us to bad ideas and collectivism and everything else. So I don't. I think it's hard to make a case that this is the sole reason. But I think you could make a case that it's a contributing reason, sure. Um, and um, I do also blame so, – so I would say, yeah, on average, I think if you look at the stats on average, women are probably more likely to vote for welfare state stuff. I think that's just true. Um, <clears throat> we're allowed to say that. I would blame – in terms of the feminists – I would blame men who don't stand up to feminist ideology um, and myself included for some period of time. Right. Um, even when I was an individualist, I, uh, I didn't recognize the toxicity of feminism as much as I should have. Um, but I specifically, I, I think there's a lot of men who just never stood up to female dysfunction. Um, if you think about, Again, I don't don't think that this is me saying this is a moral way. I'm just describing the way it was. If you think about historically, <clears throat> um, women uh, women are or generally well, and this is still true. General women are generally more social manipulators, and men are more object manipulators. That's just true. Um, this is why you know female babies stare at faces longer than objects compared to male babies, and blah 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 blah. Like. In general, women are more social manipulators um, and men are more object manipulators. Now, this wasn't a problem. I mean, it may be a problem for political power. They didn't have political power. Right? Men were in control and, and men used force to stay in control. So women didn't uh, have rights in the sense of like, you you know, people could beat their wives or whatever, like horrific things could, could be done. Um, and so... Uh, <clears throat> the the extent of women's social manipulation if if there were dysfunctional females who were willing to you know have that social manipulation turn malignant um that that was that extent of the damage is pretty limited um because they don't actually have there's like they're opposed physically um by men um and then of course what what we did as a society and there's not I'm not saying this is bad um but what we did was we said well it's wrong to use initiation of force. Like, okay, it's wrong to use force. Great. That makes sense. So we need to 
stop using force against women. Um, we need to grant them rights uh, or recognize rights that they have. Um, so in doing so, we kind of removed the guardrails that would protect malignant female behavior from um, <clears throat> infecting a culture, right? Because men don't have, in general, men don't have the social manipulation defenses uh, against, against women. Like they're not, that's not their thing. Um, they resorted to much more <laughs> brutal ways of limiting crazy women's influence, right? Um, and once they gave up those ways, they never really recognized that there still needed to be guardrails on the behavior of women and, and, and that they needed to still reject female psychological dysfunction um, and recognize. I mean, we have a we have a crisis of Amber Heard's, right? And most guys uh, don't see through it. I, I don't sometimes, right, often. So, um, you know, Richard Pett says, this hails back to my questions before about agreeableness versus disagreeableness. Yeah, right? So <clears throat> I think if you're going to have a society uh, in which there isn't there there is equality in terms of uh you know everyone has a you know no one can beat other people or initiate the use of force against them and they you know own property all treated equally under the law if you're gonna have that society um you you can't you can't remove social guardrails you have to have you know if you're, if you're not going to police with force, which you shouldn't, you need to police with uh, social guardrails and, and ostracism. And you need to be able to detect uh, Amber Heard well before she takes a shit on your bed. Right? Um, so, and, and I don't think we do. I don't think we even realize that we should be doing that. I think uh, a lot of men are scared to do that or just it's not even on their radar uh guys generally don't think in those terms and so i think a lot of um a lot of feminism is about female psychological dysfunction and it's, and it's run amok right uh I, I do think that's that's true um in terms of importing populations that don't value individualism uh i would say <sighs> The problem here is really the welfare state, not the not individuals coming in. Um, when you have no safety net, when you have a culture that requires that um, you adopt individual responsibility in in the in the ethos of individualism, and and it's a sink or swim culture, well, you can have anyone you want come in to the to the country and. Uh, if they don't adopt that ethos, they will not survive. They'll leave. And I think something. I think at the turn of the night, the turn of the century, the early 1900s. I think. I think the. I don't remember, but I think the rates were like 30 percent of immigrants just left. They didn't like it. They didn't. They didn't like it. They didn't like individual responsibility. Um, but again, you need to have that. You can't have safety nets, right? You can't have a welfare state. Um, 
you need to have pressure to integrate culturally. And I don't mean eat pizza and burgers. I mean, integrate culturally with respect to individualism, individualist ethics and individual responsibility, personal responsibility. Right. Um, so, uh, I think that's really the issue isn't that you're, you're importing populations that don't value individualism so much as you're letting, uh, you're letting people who don't value individualism and in their own individual responsibility, uh, <clears throat> you're giving them a free pass, right? In, in you're, you're cultivating that behavior, whether it's from native born Americans or, or, uh, or foreigners, and certainly, you know, America is unique in that there is tends to be more of a spirit of individualism. So almost anywhere you import people from, you're going to have less of that than you are the native population, just because of uh, you know culturally that was more our history than it was in Brazil or wherever else, right? So, <clears throat> um, but again, this isn't the whole story either, right? You got again, like I mentioned, you got academia doing its thing. <clears throat> um, to destroy the value of individualism and the, and the ethos of individualism. Um, what was the other question? Why do people not see this and blame the Jews? I, I, dude, I'm not in the same chance that you are. I don't, I don't know. Do people blame the? I guess, I guess some alt right people blame Jews. I don't, I don't know why they do that. I, if I had to guess, uh, I would say that. Um, a lot of the people that probably blame the Jews, um, the people I have seen that blame Jews tend to be, uh, and the only ones that I'm kind of aware of are when I read manifestos from mass shooters, they tend to be pretty anti-Semitic. Um, I think a lot of these men are uh, maybe afraid to talk about what we just talked about with respect to the difference between men and women and, and, um, and female psychological dysfunction. Uh, I think, you know, if you, the minute you talk about like, if I'll get called an incel for saying what I've said, right? Like you get called a lot of things for criticizing women in any real way. It's, if it's a broad brush, even if you criticize a particular female, you can get called a lot of things. But if you start saying, yeah, women in general have this trait that isn't all that great for Western civilization, and we should kind of put some guardrails on it and make sure they don't get out of hand, you'll get lynched. <laughs> I mean, you'll get, there's a, there's a lot of, uh, <clears throat> there's a lot of pressure to not talk about that. It's much easier to Maybe I don't I don't know. Maybe in some of these chants that you're in, there's much easier to yell about Jews. I don't I I don't really know. They're an easy scapegoat. They've been a scapegoat for a while. Um, they do tend to be in positions of power often. Um, I don't know. I assume that they're disproportionately in positions of power. I assume that's true. I haven't actually done a study, but certainly uh, it seems that way. Uh, so, you know, um, I don't know. I don't know why people don't see it and blame the Jews, but I think they don't want to see it. I think it's, it's very difficult, <clears throat> especially if you're a young single man who's trying to not die alone. It's very difficult to say critical things about females, right? Uh, Cause you know, you'll, you'll get ostracized. Guys want access to, to women. So, um, I can get away with saying it because I'm happily married and I don't give a crap. Uh, but, and even I'm trying to be careful. Uh, 
and, and tread lightly. So, all right. <clears throat> what can we do? Uh, is the next part of this question. I think, um, <clears throat> I don't think it's moral or desirable to return to this overt patriarchy that involves initiation. These forces I mentioned before, like I'm not saying the answer is to revoke the rights to vote from women and go back to not allowing them to have property and be misogynistic. Like, I don't think that's uh, a good answer. Um, <clears throat> unless we revoke everyone's right to vote. Uh, I'm almost down with that, but <laughs> for, for other reasons. So uh, yeah, look, I, I don't think that's the answer. Um, I think you're frustrated as am I with, this general fact, which is we are on a sinking ship, right? I talked about earlier uh, philosophy being the kind of inertia that moves this giant ship forward that, that keeps that ship going. And, you know, I'm not trying to black pill you guys, but I am trying to be realistic. We are on the Titanic. The, the iceberg is there. Our cultural inertia is slamming us into the iceberg or will if it hasn't already. It's too late to turn the entire culture of the U.S. away from the iceberg. It will hit. Now, we don't have to stay on the ship, right? We don't have to stay on the ship. Uh, you know, if you're wed to the idea of the 50 states of America run from Washington, D.C., well, you're screwed. I'm sorry. Right, I'm not wed to that idea. I don't care. Um, I am wed to the idea of individualism. I I am wed to the idea of reason. Um, and so, if we can separate and get in a little dinghy before catastrophe sets in, that's cool. Um, and, and I think I think the focus for me is really a separation, and and then focus on uh, this the philosophy of reason and individualism and helping people to understand, you know, people in the dinghy that's separating. Like, it's easy. <laughs> the conversation about individualism is really easy when you, and, and this is where most people stop the conversation. Leave me alone, right? Don't tread on me. Da, 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 da. Yeah, that's super easy. A lot of people are like, yeah, don't tread on me. Leave me alone. It's a lot harder to get people to say, I'll leave you alone <laughs> and Hey, leave them alone. Like all three of those things need to be part of this philosophy. So even someone you don't like, you need to be able to point and say, leave them alone. And, uh, you know, you need to be able to separate this moral stuff from the legal stuff. Uh, you need to be able to say, look, I think what's happening here is immoral or bad but we need to handle it through social pressure, not through the apparatus of the state. Um, so building that culture, which is really probably a subculture. Uh, like I said, it's a, we, can't, we don't have time to do that for the entire ship. But we could do it on a little, a little dinghy, <laughs> right? a little lifeboat. Um, and and I think we need to focus on this the psychology um, aspect, which is the recognition and intolerance intolerance of psychological dysfunction. Like I said, I think we have an epidemic of Amber Heard's, um, and uh, in order to 
combat this epidemic, you need to be willing to be attacked and lied about. You're going to be called mean or an asshole or a jerk. They might also try and take a dump in your bed. You're going to be accused of abuse and other horrific things. You need to be willing to go, yep, I understand that's going to happen to me. That's what's going to be said. The crazy borderline women, mostly women, I guess not all, but they are going to, and they're flying monkey men and whatever, they're going to say these things. They're going to lie about you. They're going to poop in your bed. They're going to call you a jerk or an asshole, whatever. They're going to do all the things that Amber Heard does. And you got to be prepared for that and be like, yeah, okay. I'm still not going to tolerate their psychological dysfunction. Psychological dysfunction. Um, so I think, you know, we separate into the lifeboat. We focus on the philosophy and psychology. We focus on how to raise kids. Um, <clears throat> you know, I think that the number one thing with raising kids is accepting the parental responsibility that they're your children. Therefore, you have to raise them. Not daycare, not the government teacher that you hire or the private school teacher that you hire. It's your job to raise kids. That's it's your job. If they're your kids, it's your job. Um, and that's not a minor thing. It's not something to be taken lightly. Um, and if you're a full-time parent and that's all you do, it's nothing to be ashamed of. It's something to be proud of. It's a necessary and difficult and essential task for saving Western civilization. Um, so contrary to the feminists who would say, you know, how dare you stay home and raise kids? That's you're not using your brain and you're not really having the autonomy that you need and you need to go out and earn money and blah, blah, blah. Screw that. Raise like it's one of the most noble things you can do is correctly raise kids. And to do that, you know, you're you going to raise independent thinkers that are tethered to reality. So kids that don't grow up thinking that might makes right. You know, when you, they, they don't uh, like argument from authority shouldn't be a thing in your house because I said so is not a reason ever. Right. Altruism isn't a thing. Stop forcing kids to be altruistic. No greater good and public good kind of crap. And teach them personal responsibility. Let them suffer the consequence of their mistakes. Don't save them. Right. So you can do all this as a parent. Um, and, you know, you only have so much control. I mean, you could you could end up with a kid who, you know, for whatever reason, genetically is crazy or whatever. Like, I, I'm not saying you're, you know, you're 100% responsible, but you are responsible for doing your best to raise them that way. And um, I think our only solution here is, you know, if you're looking for a solution, like how do we move this ship before we hit the iceberg? We can't. But we can, we can create a counterculture, a subculture where this is the stuff we do. We we teach the philosophy of individualism. We teach it to kids. We we focus on psychologically policing uh, our uh, our relationships and and people around us, and we don't let Amber Heard into our lives. Uh, and um, and we point out when someone's dating Amber Heard. Uh, and we're not afraid to call this stuff out and, and, um, you know, maybe, maybe we end up in a lifeboat that doesn't hit the iceberg, <clears throat> which for me is a white pill, right? I mean, the bad thing about hitting the iceberg is drowning in the cold water. If we get on a lifeboat and we don't drown in the cold water and we end up in a tropical island somewhere to start over, that's fine. 
All right. <clears throat> Amoral Pancake says, Hey, Carter, do you have a hill that you're willing to die on, something so important that you would, wouldn't think twice about spending all of your time and money to protect? Mine was probably the global minimum tax that the Biden 2023 budget proposal authorized. The global minimum, this is a quote, the global minimum tax deal negotiated through the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development is aimed at ending a downward competitive spiral of corporate rates and an erosion of government revenues while denying advantages to tax haven countries. End quote. I see this as a license for oppression. We are now no better than the USSR under Lenin. But how can someone even fight this? All I can think to do is support black markets. Um, that is a particularly egregious thing, right? Because they don't like, <clears throat> governments don't like the idea that there's someplace on earth where you can hide from them, right? Like they don't, these little havens where they're like, yeah, we're not going to oppress you. Like they, the oppressors can't stand that there's tiny islands in the Caribbean that uh, won't oppress you as much as they think you should be oppressed. Uh, so yeah, that's a, that's a bad one. Um, <coughs> I think it's a great question. Uh, it depends on whether you mean the hill to die on, whether you mean that metaphorically or not. Um, you did spend, say, all my all your time and money on. Look, uh, you're talking to someone who absolutely killed my financial health and career. I've already ruined my financial life and career. Um, I know not of all of you know my past, but uh, I was a successful entrepreneur. I made more money than I ever thought I would make. Uh, I ended up losing a bunch through some other bad entrepreneurial decisions. But like, I've had a successful career. I should be doing what I should be doing. Should in quotes, the expectation would be to continue in Silicon Valley. I was running uh, a venture capital firm. Uh, I I should be doing that. I should be continuing my own career. Like I, I have, this is not my career. This has never been my career, but instead I started talking on the internet like this is, and it just destroyed. I can't go. I mean, you know, you rewind a few years. I could easily go get a job at a company like Google for literally 300, 400 K. I don't know. I mean, I, I could have gotten, I could have, I could have easily had a better career and a more comfy life. Um, the turning point for me was, um, <clears throat> when I, I started to get called names because of guilt by association and, and through, I think I've told the story before, but I had a, a black female come in for, uh, to pitch an idea. The idea was both illegal and stupid. So we denied her funding, <clears throat> which, you know, usually you deny funding. That's not an unusual thing. Uh, but it was a stupid, stupid and illegal idea. And we said, no, I'm fund you. Sorry. Um, and she went out and um, told the community that I was a Nazi, that I had denied her because, and my business partner, who, who was a Nazi, an Asian man, uh, <clears throat> that we were Nazis because we had denied her um, <clears throat> investment. And she dug up on Twitter, I had retweeted Mike Cernovich. And that was the proof. And 
not only did she say that, but a bunch of people in the industry grabbed that and they were like, yeah, look at him. He retweeted Cernovich. He is a Nazi. And they like, that's, you know, and, and, um, we were going to do the next fund. And when I was talking to my partners and they were like, well, you just have to not tweet anymore because we can't have that happen again. Um, uh, that was my line. I was like, you know what? Fuck you. I'm like, I'm, I'm not going to be quiet. I'm not going to let this, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to censor myself. Uh, and something unrelated even, it's like, you know, I, I'm, I wasn't speaking on behalf of the company on Twitter. I was just my personal, like, I'm like, well, I'm not going to censor myself. That that was my line. Um, where I was willing to basically spend after that all my money. Like that was that I destroyed my career. Um, so for me, that like I that that line happened. Um, if you mean literally die, like use the Second Amendment and die, I I don't know where that line is for me. Um, maybe central bank digital currency, right? There's no coming back from something like that. I don't know. Um, you know, Jeremy um, Kaufman, who's running for Senate in New Hampshire, his his argument is you pick a spot. He picked New Hampshire, but you pick a spot and you defend it and, you know, don't, you know, that that's what you do. Um, but I think, I think a big problem with the phrasing of this question, I'm not trying to pick on, on you, but I think the big problem with the phrasing of this question is it's the implication here is that this is a step function, right? That it's like, you know, nothing, 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 boom, die on a hill, right? You do nothing that makes you uncomfortable until something happens that's your Rubicon, Rubicon's been crossed, and now you die fighting. Um, and I don't think that's how you should look at it. I don't think that will work, first of all. I think you need to get used to small suffering for a cause and build up to something like that. No one's going to be go from being a part of the Borg to fighting the Borg because of a single event. Like that not, They're not going to do that effectively. That doesn't work. Um, and also not doing anything until some Rubicon is crossed lets the opposition become too entrenched. I mean, would you rather argue with Karl Marx or shoot it out with Stalin's NKVD, right? I would rather argue with Marx before I have to shoot it out with Stalin. So um, I think opposition to this stuff should be a continuum, right? Every little form of resistance comes at a cost, right? So the question isn't really, when are you going to literally die on a hill? The question is, well, when are you going to be willing to lose friends? When are you going to be willing to lose family? When are you going to be willing to lose a job? When are you going to be willing to lose access to services like Twitter or Facebook or even banks? When are you going to be willing to risk jail for peaceful resistance? Right? When are you going to do agorism or black market stuff or tax protests or 3D gun printing? Or even collecting illegal rainwater, like illegal collection of rainwater. There's no such thing as illegal rainwater, but... Right, like there's little things that you can do that could hurt you, that could risk your uh, freedom, um, that could cost you money, that could put you at risk, make your life harder. And if you're not willing to break any rules yet, you're not willing to kind of suffer any incremental costs in an escalated war to defend individualism, but you have this fantasy that someday some law will get passed or some singular event will occur and that will cross the line for you. And on that day, you're going to go grab your tactical gear and Rambo it out with your oppressors. I think you're living in a fantasy world. 
right? The idea of this step function where like I sit on the couch and watch Netflix until that day comes. Uh, and then I go fight the good fight. That's histrionic. It's a Hollywood concept. It makes for a great movie, but life's battles are not like that. You want the, it's the little battles that are essential. But they're just not sensational. They don't make good stories. So I would say, instead of thinking in terms of a hill to die on, think in terms of continuously escalating the cost that you're willing to pay as things get worse. Right. And the more you pay up front, the less likely you're going to have to actually die on a hill. Um, so I I would encourage you to think of this in, in a continuum, not in a what's the thing that you'll do where you have to die on a hill. Like I'm already I, I'm already I'm not, I don't want to say like sacrificing because it's like I'm I'm getting something out of it. I'm defending what I want to defend, but like it already costs me. Right. Um, and it might cost me more in the future. And it maybe that cost will escalate uh, the more I need to resist. Uh and I think that should be true for everyone and how much that cost you're willing to pay and how much you're willing to resist. You know, if you're not doing anything right now, if it's not costing you anything right now, I'm not sure how you can say that you value Western civilization. I mean, you gotta be doing something right now. It's, it's so bad that like, if you're not willing to do very minor things, uh, I, you know, I don't know who you think you're kidding in terms of what side you're on. <clears throat> G-Man says, ask Snowden and Julia Assange this question. They know the cost. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, look at that. Look what Snowden... Look what Snowden gave up. <clears throat> you know, he didn't take up an AR-15 and, and fight it out, but... <clears throat> He may, he may very well die as a result. And we are there. We're at the point where you need to be doing something. Or you just say you don't care about Western civilization. That's fine. I disagree with you, and I think you're you know not helpful. But if you care about it, you, like it should be costing you something. You should be doing something. Um, all right. <clears throat> you don't have to do what I'm doing. That's, I, you know, I maybe went a little overboard. Okay, uh, it's been an hour and a half, but I wanted to talk about one other thing. Someone brought up uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's theory of stupidity. <clears throat> this was a guy in Nazi Germany who uh, he ended up imprisoned and, and killed, actually, right before liberation. Um, and he wrote something called after 10 years, and he's got a section in it called On Stupidity. People have been asking about it, and I'm just going to – I'm going to read this little section. I the, I don't actually like a lot of what this guy has to say. Like, it, he's not making arguments. He says that explicitly. He's just, like, reciting conclusions. Some of the stuff he says I think is, is horrific. Um, so, you know, I mean, here's an example of something I think that's horrific. Uh who stands firm? Only the one whose ultimate standard is not his reason, his principles, conscious freedom, or virtue. Only the one who is prepared to sacrifice all of these when in faith and in relationship to God alone he is called to obedient and responsible action. I just think whether or not you're an atheist or a Christian, placing your highest value, which is God, I'm, I'm going to interpret God as, 
even though I'm not a Christian here, like it, it's, that should be your highest value. God, like placing that in contrast to freedom and virtual and principles and your conscious, like I don't. So there's a lot of crap here, but he does have an interesting theory on stupidity. So it's worth reading. <clears throat> yeah, he was a priest, by the way. Someone asked in chat if he was a priest or pastor or whatever. He was a, a religious figure <clears throat> who apparently thinks that God is in <clears throat> conflict with virtue. All right. Um, on stupidity, this is this section. I'm just going to read it. It's not that long. Stupidity is a more dangerous enemy of the good than malice. One may protest against evil. It can be exposed and, if need be, prevented by use of force. Evil always carries within itself the germ of its own subversion and that, in that it leaves behind in human beings at least a sense of unease. Against stupidity, we are defenseless. <clears throat> Neither protests nor the use of force accomplish anything here. Reasons, fa reasons fall on deaf ears. Facts that contradict one's prejudgment simply need not be believed. In such moments, the stupid person even becomes critical. And when facts are irrefutable, they're just pushed aside as inconsequential, as incidental. In all this, the stupid person, in contrast to the malicious one, is utterly self-satisfied and, being easily irritated, becomes dangerous by going on the attack. For that reason, greater caution is called for when dealing with a stupid person than with a malicious one. Never again will we try to persuade the stupid person with reasons for it is senseless and dangerous. If we want to know how to get the better of stupidity, we must seek to understand its nature. This much is certain, that in its essence, not an intellectual defect, in its essence, it is not an intellectual defect, but a human one. There are human beings who are of remarkably agile intellect, yet stupid, and others who are intellectually quite dull, yet anything but stupid. We discover this to our surprise in particular situations. The impression one gains is not so much that stupidity is a congenital defect, but that, under certain circumstances, people are made stupid, or that they allow this to happen to them. We note further <coughs> that people who have isolated themselves from others or who live in solitude manifest this defect less frequently than individuals or groups of people inclined or condemned to sociability. And so it would seem that stupidity is perhaps less a psychological term than a sociological problem. <coughs> It is a sorry. It is a particular form of the impact of historical circumstances on human beings, a psychological concomitant of certain external conditions. Upon closer observation, it becomes apparent that every strong <clears throat> upsurge of power in the public sphere, be it of a political or a religious nature, infects a large part of humankind with stupidity. It would even seem that this is virtually a sociological psychological law. The power of the one needs the stupidity of the other. The process at work here is not that particular human capacities, for instance, the intellect, suddenly atrophy or fail. Instead, it seems that, the, that under the overwhelming impact of rising power, humans are deprived of their inner independence and more or less consciously give up establishing an autonomous position through the emerging circumstances. The fact that the stupid person is often stubborn must not blind us to the fact that he is not independent. In conversation with him, one virtually feels that one is dealing not at all with him as a person, but with slogans, catchwords, and the like that have taken possession of him. He is under a spell, blinded, misused, and abused in his very being. 
Having thus become a mindless tool, the stupid person will also be capable of any evil and at the same time incapable of seeing that it is evil. This is where the danger of diabolical misuse lurks, for it is this that can once and for all destroy human beings. <clears throat> Yet at this very point, it becomes quite clear that only an act of liberation, not instruction, can overcome stupidity. Here we must come to the terms, terms with the fact that in most cases, a genuine internal liberation becomes possible only when external liberation has preceded it. Until then, we must abandon all attempts to convince the stupid person. This state of affairs explains why in such circumstances our attempts to know what, quote, the people really think are in vain, and why, under these circumstances, this question is so irrelevant for the person who is thinking and acting responsibly. The word of the Bible, <clears throat> that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, declares that the internal liberation of human beings to live the responsible life before God is the only genuine way to overcome stupidity. But these thoughts about stupidity also offer consolation in that they utterly forbid us to consider the majority of people to be stupid in every circumstance. It really will depend on whether those in power expect more from people's stupidity than from their inner independence and wisdom. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> I, this is a part I like that he wrote. I think it's, it's well-written and I think it's a, it's a good observation. Um, <clears throat> Let's just be a little bit more precise. Obviously, this is a translation from German or whatever. So, but let's be a little more precise <clears throat> about the concept of a cognitive repertoire. I'll break it into two things: it's IQ and psychological temperament. Um, I would say, in this context, if we want to be more clear, stupid here really means a willful psychological blindness to some to, to something. Um, and, you know, we have, as I said before, we have this fundamental ability and responsibility uh, to choose whether to think or not at any given moment. We get, you know, uh, <clears throat> thoughts enter your brain all the time. Maybe you hear something from someone, you read it on Twitter, or it just occurs to you based on something in the past, whatever. You're presented with a thought. Um, sometimes those thoughts uh, come with feelings of discomfort. Often that's because they challenge some assumptions or they you kind of get this vague sense like, well, this would this would cause these other problems with things I believe. And so um, you have a choice to make. You can explore it despite the discomfort, or you can find a way to evade it by right? changing the subject in your head, justifying it, whatever. Um and <clears throat> this decision you make is kind of like a muscle, right? Uh, if you choose to evade, that makes the next time uh, even more uncomfortable. And so you evade that time, and evading becomes easier and common, and you don't even notice that you're evading. If you choose to confront it, <clears throat> it makes the, the next time you're confronted with this less uncomfortable. It's easier to confront it again. Um, so I would say stupid in this context here, as he's referring to it, is this repeated evasion such that evasion becomes second nature by default. Um, and of course, the advantage you have with doing that is you get to abdicate the responsibility of thought. You get to do what the leader says or what the social group says or, or what Twitter says or what Fauci says, right? The disadvantage is obviously someone else is doing your thinking for you. Um, and so I think people do become stupid in that sense um, unrelated to their IQ, 
And that's because of this choice of evading thought. Um, and then it be, when it becomes second nature, they end up just being led by um, their elephant, which is being trained by the stuff we've talked about, the elephant and the rider stuff. So um, <clears throat> and you can kind of see this. You can kind of test it. When, when someone's confronted with counter evidence or arguments, how do they react? Right? And, and you're not evaluating whether they immediately embrace them, but you're evaluating their method, right? Do they, are they dedicated to reason? Do they go, okay, well, I do need to apply reason. Do they try and step back and, and apply reason to this and, and be as objective as possible? Um, do they confront the uncomfortable stuff and try and integrate it with their understanding of reality? Or do they kind of avoid, avoid it, avoid reality, right? So an obvious example here is when you hear people uh, wanting restrictions on free speech because uh, they want to avoid hearing counter arguments. That's clearly like, oh, they're that's a method of evasion. They don't they don't want. There's they're confronted with some stuff. They're afraid of it. They don't like it. They don't want to have to confront it. They don't want to hear it. They don't want other people to hear it. They're evading. This is a it's a systematic evasion. In fact, they're trying to set up a structure where they don't even have to evade. They it's like evasion happens automatically because they don't get to hear the things. Um, so, um, you know, like I said, I like what he wrote here. Uh, I like that he says, don't bother arguing with stupid. I think he's right on that, on that point. I think, uh, it, if stupid is what we just described, um, you know, the analogy here is, uh, the, the zombies, right? Um, you know, when you got a horde of zombies coming after you wanting to eat your brains, arguing with them isn't going to help. And I think he's right. He's right on that point. Um, and this is why I'm more interested in helping people who are, I'll say red-pilled or whatever, but like what I mean by that is counterculture already. I'm, I'm more interested in helping them sort out what's going on. You know, we talked about the, the lifeboat and getting the lifeboat and philosophy and psychology and parenting and whatever. Like I'm more interested in, in talking to people who know something's wrong. They're already counterculture, maybe trying to figure it out and and figure out, exactly what's wrong and how to fight it or what to do or exactly how to deconstruct what's going on uh, rather than arguing with leftists about how many genders there are like that's not a that's not an argument i'm interested in having precisely because i i put them in this category of what bonhoeffer's calling stupid i wouldn't use the word stupid i would just say that they've kind of um become these intellectual zombies they've chosen to evade over and over again and arguing with them isn't isn't really going to help um, so, you know, my, my task here, what, what I view as my task is kind of help establish this counterculture with you guys, like help delineate the principles, build that lifeboat, build the alternate economy, build an alternate community, build an alternate society, an alternate society even, and like, and, and, uh, not focus so much on convincing zombies that they, they are not hungry for brains because that's just not going to work. <sighs> <clears throat> yeah, Grey Wolf says IQ is irrelevant. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> the analogy I've used for IQ before is um, IQ is like the engine of a car. So Stephen Hawking's had like a Formula One engine or whatever, like some super fast, awesome engine. And, um, you know, David Hogg has got, uh, <clears throat> I don't know, smart, a smart car. I don't know. He's got a, he's got a smaller engine, right? Um, but 
the issue is less about uh, the engine because the engine will determine how fast you can get somewhere. But what matters is where you're going. Um, and it's this choice of evasion or not evasion. It's this, it's your, it's your psychological temperament. It's how it's, it's the decisions you make there that decide that, that determine where, where you're headed, what your map is and where you're speeding to. So if you're super smart, um, and you've got this engine, but you're, you know, you're, you're uncomfortable when someone confronts the idea that, uh, social justice is a corruption of the term justice and uh like they when 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 all of your leftist default beliefs get challenged and you're uncomfortable with that and you don't want to think about it and you use that engine to evade you're just going to get to hell faster than than someone who's dumber and it takes them longer to evade right um flip side is if you're making good decisions obviously in higher iq you can get to get to a better place faster. So, all right. Uh, I think, I think we should end. I've been, I've been going longer than I intended to tonight, especially because I'm still under the weather. Uh, I'm going to mention one thing. I was going to read this, but I don't have time. <clears throat> right before we, before I went live, I saw this Biden had an executive order. I'm just going to point something out. He, Biden to sign historic executive order advancing LGBTQI plus equality during Pride Month, of course. Um, I don't want to go through all the points in here, but I'm going to point out one thing. <clears throat> one point he's got is he wants to... Um, man, I, I really do want to go through some of this, but I'll hold off on it. <clears throat> one thing that I just think is funny funny and sad and tragic. He is using the term conversion therapy. Now, of course, conversion therapy, as, as we know in the historically, this is the idea um, when you're, say you're gay and um, you go to a religious, um, usually religious-based uh, therapist and this, this therapist, the, the purpose of the therapist or their, their goal is not to help you psychologically the, the goal is not to kind of figure out what's going on because you know presumably if you're uh <clears throat> if you're gay and don't have any problems i think you still end up like if you're not if you're happy with being gay and you're fine with it you could still get sent to conversion therapy right so like the idea is well we're going to convert you into not gay like and that's that's the goal of the therapist not to really help you psychologically um and now what we have happening with – this is why ugh, conflating sexual orientation with gender identity is a huge problem, but they're, they're all in the same bucket here. So they're putting them in the same bucket, and what you're seeing now with kids who um, are, let's say, having gender dysphoria, maybe it's not even really gender dysphoria. It's just that they have some angst. It's normal teenage angst and um, <clears throat> whatever. They're dealing with some issues, and they go to – a therapist, what's happening now is a lot of these therapists are um, doing what I would call conversion therapy. They would say, like, I'm going to convert you to a different gender. Hey, have you thought about maybe you're this other gender? Um, and they kind of, they push you in that direction, and then they foist uh, drugs 
uh, unproven drugs that can sterilize you and surgery and you know, puberty blockers and, you know, and hormones and all this stuff. And so um, they, instead of being a therapist who sits down with these, these, you know, usually teenagers and, and tries to get to the heart of what, what's bothering them, why they're maybe suicidal or why they're have angst or what, you know, whatever's going on instead of having a, uh, a real open discussion led by the, the person they're they're coming in with this assumption that um, the cause is gender dysphoria. The, the cause is that you're in the wrong body. And so instead of having actual therapy, it's really a form of conversion. They're just it's a form of conversion therapy it, and, and, and actually conversion um, medicine as well. Like, oh, you're upset because you really you're a woman trapped in a man's body. So we need to put you on these drugs and get you this surgery and blah, blah, blah. We're not going to consider the possibility that there's anything else. I call that conversion therapy. Biden is using the term conversion therapy to mean not doing that. So he, so if you sit down, if you sit down with a kid and you don't just affirm whatever they are like, hey, I think maybe I'm uncomfortable in my body. If you don't just affirm that right away and help them convert to whatever gender they want to convert to. If you don't do the conversion, that's conversion therapy. That's, that's the, the way that he's, it's so Orwellian that he's using the phrase conversion therapy to me, not conversion therapy. Um, that's all I wanted to point out. You can read this whole thing if you want, maybe we'll do, you know, sometimes I feel like I should do more than one show a week. We <laughs> go through this, but I mean, there's a lot in this piece of crap document. You can read it yourself. Um, but that's the thing that struck me the most is this Orwellian use of the term conversion therapy. <clears throat> All right. Uh, Richard Pett says, it's too bad there's no live chat tonight, Carter. There's a live chat. You're in it. It would be great to have an actual chat with you maybe some other time. Oh, you mean like come up on screen, have a chat? We will do that again sometime. That was good. I'm not sure we'll do it uh on Wednesday nights, or we'll maybe do a special thing for subscribers and do it, um, you know, that way. I'm not sure, but we will do that again because it was good to, to have those kind of conversations. I enjoyed it. So, um, look, thanks everyone for uh, for sticking around tonight. I'm sorry my voice is a little bit weird, and I know I'm a little bit lower energy than normal, but uh, I am still <laughs> COVIDed up. I'm, I'm still, <coughs> I still have the coof. So, um, <coughs> Hopefully next week I'll be better. Uh, but uh, again, thank you for for being here. Thank you to those of you who support Unsafe Space uh, financially. We do desperately, desperately need it. You can join those people at unsafespace.com. Get your name in the credits. Get to continue discussions in Discord and all that kind of stuff. Um, so uh, don't forget to like, share, subscribe. And in general, um, I do love topic suggestions, feedback. I really enjoy that I had this list of questions from uh, from people. And I do like doing that because sometimes I'm not sure what you guys really want to talk about. So um, it's it's fun to get like, this is stuff that's bothering you or whatever. And some people want to talk about it. I, I like doing that. So um, as a reminder, tomorrow night is Token Minority Report. Uh, I think it's at 4 p.m. Pacific. So you can check that out if you want. And uh, I guess that's it. I will see you on Monday for Narrative Dissonance. And um, and then again next week for another episode of Dangerous Thoughts. Until then, have a good one and uh, take care. Thanks, everyone.
Thanks for sticking around until the end. If you're new to Unsafe Space, check out our deep content library that includes discussions with everyone from James Lindsay to Brett Weinstein. And please consider helping to fund our work by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on a variety of social media platforms, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space Discord server, which is open to financial supporters at any level. We hope to see you there. Warning, this is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production does not meet WHO health and safety standards. Please report to a United Nations Sanitization Center immediately. Association with the following individuals is strictly prohibited. Experts who benefit from printing money agree that printing money does not cause price inflation. Trust me, just two more weeks to slow the spread of monkeypox. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.